Thank you, Mackenzie and Nikki, for worship this morning. Um, good morning, Risen Hope. I hope you're well today. Uh, would you join me uh, in asking God to help us with our time uh, together looking at scriptures this morning? Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your presence. We need your grace. Um, even though we're recording this early and even though we're not meeting together physically, Father God, you are a God who is above time and can work in and through our lives no matter where we are geographically and no matter where we are chronologically. And so I pray right now that you would be with each individual, each family, each person who can hear my voice, that you would unite our hearts together, not only in the worship we've experienced already, but what we're going to experience later and in the reading of your word, Father God, and, and how we see your scripture today. Come and be with us, Father, as we look at this text. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away, away completely. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. If I were to guess, um, it would, uh, or if I were to venture a guess about what I just read, it would be that all of us have heard this story before, whether in popular media or whether by reading it in the scriptures. We know this story. It's the story of Passover from the book of Exodus. The people of Israel had been under the, the brutal heel of the Egyptian kingdom for 400 years as slaves until God one day sends a rescuer by the name of Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, <clears throat> and he pleads for Pharaoh to let the people of God, the, the people of Israel, go so that they might worship their God. Pharaoh, of course, refuses. And after nine catastrophic plagues, he continues to refuse, leading to this final plague that I just read about which is, as you can see, of such a nature that it is guaranteed to break Pharaoh's will. The method of this plague is simple. God will enter the land of Egypt, and he will destroy every single firstborn until there's none left, which means that this plague will enter every home, and it will touch every family except those who follow the instructions given by God through Moses for the protection of his people, the people of Israel. And these instructions will be memorialized as something called the Passover meal. Every household must take a, a lamb, a, a male lamb that is one year old, without spot or blemish, and at twilight they kill this lamb. And Exodus 12, 7 tells us, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses. 
And then they eat this final meal and they wait the entire night. And verse 12 and 13 of Exodus 12 tells us, God tells us in those verses what will happen that evening. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, Yahweh. The blood, he says, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God tells them no plague will destroy them. And that night, they leave. The people of Israel are suddenly free from the greatest physical enemy they have ever known, and they have been delivered by God through the blood of a lamb that had covered their doorways, which is of huge significance. Think about this. God visits every single home in this story. And he passes over certain homes, not because the people inside of them were morally superior, but because there was blood. There was blood on the doorways. The only thing that could protect their home was not their morality. It was not their ethnicity. It was if there had been a sacrifice made on their behalf. There needed to be a lamb. And this is the reality that we come face to face with as we look at today's text in the book of John. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want you to see this in the scriptures. Please take them and turn with me to John 1, verse 29. John 1, 29. And we're going to read verse 29 through verse 34. It says this, The next day he that is, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So if you weren't with us last week or if you didn't catch this last week, we are in the opening sections of John, the, John, the author's narrative. And it begins with the testimony of John the Baptist, which starts with verse 19. John the Baptist is different from the author John. After... Uh, a day after he's interrogated by this delegation that comes from Jerusalem, this, this group of priests and Levites, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a simple statement, but it is probably one of the most profound statements 
in the entire Gospel of John, possibly one of the most profound statements in all of the New Testament because it is the Gospel. And this is the testimony of, of John, that the Christ he has repeatedly held out to the people that he's been preaching to, his entire ministry since it first began, that person, the Christ, is the one to come. He says, looking at Jesus, that's the Christ. That's the Lamb of God. And he tells them to behold him. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 30, he contextualizes what he means. Look at this with me. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, what he says here is critical. Jesus is a man. He is a man. He's a human being. And although he was born in this world after John, and although his ministry begins after John, John the Baptist says here that he ranks before him because he was before him. And in reading the book of John, This isn't too surprising to us because we've read verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 continues with this statement, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then there's this parenthetical in verse 15 of John 1 that says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So this is a parenthetical statement that we ran into a few months back, if you recall. It's in verse 15. It's brought forward by the author of John from the previous verse, verse uh, 30. And the purpose of John here is to take that reality that John the Baptist speaks of and to connect it to Christ as the eternal word of God. He's taking Jesus, the man, and connecting him to the word who is God. And John says here that the glory of the word, the glory of Christ, is the glory of the Father from the very beginning, from all eternity past. This is who Christ is. So this is what John means when he says, he was before me. He doesn't mean that Christ was born biologically before him because he wasn't. He means here that Christ has always existed and therefore he is eternally before him. Um, And not just eternally before John, but eternally before everything. Colossians 1.17, if you remember this a few years back, we looked at, at this. This was the Christ hymn. It says that Christ is before all things. And that's not just referencing time. It's not just chronology that's in view there but referencing the rank that John is talking about here. Christ is before all things in worth and value. And we looked at this a bit last week. If you weren't here with us last week, let me just state it for you clearly. Every single thing that is, every single thing that has ever existed and will ever exist in all of creation combined, all of that is nothing in comparison to the worth of Christ Jesus. That's what John is saying by using the words, ranks before me. Christ is literally before all things. 
And John the Baptist knows this, which is why he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. And then he immediately declares that Christ is divine. He's not just a man, he is God. Verse 34 says this, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So next week, God willing, <clears throat> we will dive into how John knew this fact about Jesus. What, what was it that about this sequence of events that told John, convinced John that Jesus was the Christ? But what I want to do this week is I want to zero in on the opening statement that John makes about the Son of God, about Jesus, the Messiah. He says right at the very beginning, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> Now, why call Jesus the Lamb of God? Why do that right here? Keep in mind, John has been, <coughs> excuse me, he's been inviting people, <coughs> all the people of Israel, to repentance through this act of baptism. His purpose, according to verse 23, was to make straight the way of the Lord, to prepare a people for the coming Messiah. And he, he's now looking at Jesus as the Christ and calling him the Lamb of God. Now, what is he doing here? Well, John's been talking about the coming of Christ, the advent of Jesus, who he would declare as Jesus, for his entire ministry. This has been his goal the entire time he's been preaching. And now when he says this is the Lamb of God, he's telling them how the Christ will forgive them, how they will have forgiveness of their sins. And so when he says Lamb of God, he's referring to the way in which all that John has done to call these people to repentance through the confessing of their sins and through the baptism in water, all of that forgiveness will now be secured through Jesus Christ and his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> you remember from the Benedictus, a few weeks ago we were looking at the, 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 the song of prophecy that Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, prophesies over his, his son in Luke 1, In this prophecy, he says that John the Baptist will give the knowledge of salvation for his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's John's ministry. <clears throat> and so by using the title Lamb of God, he's showing how that forgiveness will take place by pointing toward the sacrificial lamb in front of him which is a reality, a concept that has been woven through all of Israel's history, focusing in on the Passover event that we read earlier, that Passover meal. It's this graphic scene where this one-year-old lamb, perfect, spotless, without blemish, is killed and its blood is used to cover the doorpost and the lentil. It was a picture of God's deliverance of the people of Israel. And even <clears throat> although that, that, that picture itself was, was, was memorialized as an annual feast, it wasn't alone. There were other pictures. Yom Kippur, for example, which is known as the Day of Atonement. It's the most sacred of all Hebrew traditions. And this day was the day every year that was dedicated to the people of Israel seeking atonement for their sins. And they would do that before God with this elaborate series of rituals that are prescribed in Leviticus that focused on what it meant for their sin to be removed from them, for all the iniquity that they had committed to be removed. And among other things, 
it vividly illustrated the cost required to remove sin and remove iniquity from the presence, from, the, from people who were in the presence of a very holy God. It was a solemn tradition. And if Yom Kippur and Passover were annual reminders of, of God's deliverance and of the need for atonement from sin through sacrifice, God still saw fit to display this through other pictures. Here's an example. Exodus 29 describes what is a daily activity for the priests in Israel. Every morning and every evening, a one-year-old lamb was sacrificed on the altar to, to purify and to consecrate the people daily. Every morning, every evening. This is a big deal for the Hebrew people. This is not a, a light matter. For Passover, this was linked to God's salvation for the people from Egypt. In Yom Kippur, it was linked to the atoning work that God would do for the people every year for their sin. And here it is simply a daily necessity just in order for God to dwell in their midst, just for him to be near them. And we may, because we're modern thinkers, we may be tempted to ask why such violence and cruelty to uh, these animals? Like, why would that happen? But the whole reason for this system is that the hearts of the people would be gripped by the costliness of dishonoring an objectively beautiful and objectively glorious and worthy God. Mercy, real mercy is not free. It is costly. And as precious and as wonderful as these animals are to God, and they're more precious to him than they are to any human being on the planet. He made them, every molecule of them. These sacrifices were absolutely necessary to show the horror and the trauma morally of sin. To so let's just think about this for a second here. To dishonor an eternally holy and worthy and glorious being like our God, to do that through our sin, through refusing to trust in him, through refusing to obey him when his, his commandments are wise and true and right, to, to refuse to do that is not a light matter. It is eternally deadly. And these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices throughout the years of the Hebrew people, these things were necessary because our sin, sin itself, is infinitely catastrophic. And that's not an overstatement. If anything, it is an understatement to, as a human being, relegate the source of all joy, the source of all beauty in the universe to the periphery of our lives is to commit a treason at a cosmic level. And these sacrifices exist and they are horrible to think of precisely to illustrate the severity of the treason. And therefore, they were necessary. But here's the thing is even they in their extraordinary magnitude, and there's a lot here, were not sufficient to do what needed to be done for this people, which is why John 129 exists. 
Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, and he includes, I think in his language there, all animals, including lambs, to take away sins. They can only serve as a picture to communicate the moral horror of sin. Which is why when John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he does that, something unprecedented has just taken place in human history. A solution for the sin of the world has been made known. And it is the Lamb of God who John says here is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And so think about this. Every single lamb that had ever been laid on an altar in all of Israel's history had been pointing to this one man, the Christ, the Messiah, who would come as the final lamb, not just to take away the sin of ethnic Israel, the Hebrew people, but every single people group in the entire world throughout all of history He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what this means here. There is no place on the planet where the power of his atoning work cannot reach. He has removed sin once and for all. And so for those who receive him and his work, as Psalm 103 tells us, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that is an infinite removal because there is no end to east or to west. They go on forever. And this is why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what the Passover in Egypt so many years ago was always pointing to a cosmic deliverance. Except this is the key difference between what happened in Egypt and what happened on the cross. In Egypt, the firstborn was killed by God when there was no provision of a sacrifice. But here, God kills his own firstborn in order to provide the sacrifice. The Lamb of God is the Son of God. And Isaiah 53 would tell us that Christ was the Lamb that was led to the slaughter Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him because that was the only way that we'd be free of our sins. And so, Paul, when reflecting on this in 1 Corinthians 5, he expresses that Christ was our Passover lamb and he's been sacrificed for us that we might be delivered from sin. 1 Peter 1 describes it like this. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God." Christ is our Passover lamb. And this is why John signals the advent of Christ with this phrase, behold the lamb of God. Let me just be honest with you. Everything in our lives as Christians hangs on this reality. It is the cross of Christ. Jesus as the Passover lamb. 
is more important than anything else in our lives. There's nothing more important than this. When Christ came into the world, he came to die for sin, for our sin. And that was his central act. There is literally no greater deliverance in the world that we need than this one. And Jesus, knowing that, desired that his people would always remember this act, which is why the night before his death, as he celebrated Passover with his disciples, the Passover meal, he would do something remarkable. It wasn't an accident that he died the night after Passover. Jesus wanted his own death to sit right next to the death of the lamb at the Passover feast. And so he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper, communion. And what I would like to do as we begin to close is something we do every Sunday, and that is fix our minds on what we're going to do during this next song. Partake, if you're willing and able, in your own home, in communion, the Lord's Supper. Well, what I want to do before we, we get to that point is I want to read to you this Passover, the, 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 the Lord's Supper being instituted in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22, and I want to key in on one specific aspect of this Passover meal that he's sharing with his disciples. Here's Luke 22, starting with verse 14. Listen to this. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We all know this scene. We repeat it every single Sunday. And we do that because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. We are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. But listen to what he says here when he opens up this dinner. This Passover meal, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired. Talking to his disciples, and in a way, he is talking to each one of us who continue to eat this. Christ earnestly desired to eat this meal because it was a meal that would show how he would take away our sins forever. A meal that would show his love for us and for his disciples as the sacrificial lamb of God. Why would he, tell him, why would he say this to them? Why would he tell them that he earnestly desires to show them the cross in this meal? And why would he, why would he earnestly desire to connect his death with the deliverance of the Passover thousands of years before. And the reason is this, Christ longs for us to know what it means for him to be the Lamb of God. And not only what it would cost him, 
But he wants us to know, he wants you to know that it wasn't forced on him. He desire, earnestly desired to lay down his life as the lamb. He wants us to know that the cross isn't an afterthought. It's not an accident. It's not just something that had to happen. Christ lays down his life of his own accord, according to John 10. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes, and I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, sometimes it feels like Jesus died for me, died for us as the Lamb of God because he had to. Sometimes it feels like it was an obligation on him, and therefore he did it. He was being obedient, but it was a begrudging obedience. But I just want to pull your eyes to these two words, earnestly desired. That's not what he, he says here, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And for Christ to say that means that he has desired it. He really desires it. And because he is the Christ, he has desired it from before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. In fact, that's what John the Baptist meant when he said he ranks before me because he was before me. That's what John, the author of the book of John, meant by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and then saying, in the Word became flesh. The whole purpose of all of that is that he earnestly desires to pursue us on the cross, to even embrace and experience the full vent of God's just wrath for our sins that is deserved so that we, like the people of Israel, would be delivered. But we would be delivered from every single sin we've ever committed. We would be completely forgiven of those sins. This is how Christ manifests his glory most supremely, by honoring the worth of his Father on the cross in pursuit of undeserving sinners because of his great love for us. And we need to believe this. You need to believe this. Jesus loves you and he's earnestly desired to show you this love from all eternity. And since there's no beginning to his love for you, since it's always been, you can be confident that there will be no end to his love for you. That's the whole point of the cross. The cross was, is there in human history to remove every single obstacle from our future with Christ. From what he talks about in Luke 22, this meal that we're going to have with him when the kingdom of God is fulfilled. When every sin that we have, every struggle that you experience in this life is removed forever. When the lamb who was slain comes back to gather together his precious people who he purchased with his own blood. That's why Jesus says to his disciples at this table, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, even after I accomplish all that I'm going to accomplish on the cross, I still earnestly desire to be with you. And so every week, the reason we participate in communion the reason we partake in the Lord's Supper is not because this is a religious tradition. It's not because it's just something Christians do. We participate because Christ earnestly desired for us to know what it means for him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
That's why we do this. He longs for us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us more than we can possibly imagine and that he still desires to earnestly be with you. And this time when he comes back for us, it will be to be with us forever. It will last forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome thing, what an awesome thing that your Son, clothed in flesh on this earth, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing reality that is. That for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the Hebrew history, we have picture after picture after picture of what it would take. And then John the Baptist one day sees Jesus coming towards him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Help us understand how Christ's pursuit of us on the cross is an act of love where he earnestly desired to remove our sin forever. Help us feel that reality, Father God, not just understand it intellectually, but that it would penetrate the deepest parts of our being and that we would be transformed by it. I, I know I'm asking for a supernatural thing. That's why I'm asking you. So Father, please do this reality in my heart and in the hearts of my friends who can hear my voice right now, Father. Magnify your name in us embracing your Son, your precious Son, Christ Jesus, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.